0: Dot com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle-enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Well, start health, sick to fit, and oh, I don't know, planet earth. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a courageous and compassionate life. So if you've been following my work for maybe let's say 5 years, you've certainly noticed transitions in my interests and my activities. So I got into uh, the plant-based world through books, through writing Whole with T. Colin Campbell, through writing Proteinaholic with Garth Davis, and both of those were very heavily science-based, evidence-based, and I kind of got into the argumentation and the debate about what's the better diet, and look at this study and look at that study. And after a while, I realized that I wasn't having any fun um, I was not a great debater, so I wasn't really good at winning the debates. And the feeling I had in the middle of them was kind of yucky, like I was trying to prove people wrong and be smarter, and it was exhausting. And really, it wasn't doing that much good in the world anyway, especially for me, when my passion had always been helping people implement change. In my my life as a coach, um, as a marketing consultant, it was always to get people to do different things on their own behalf, in the, for their own benefit. And so I shifted back into my first passion, coaching. And now I'm chief of behavioral science at WellStart Health and co-author with Josh LeJondi of Sick to Fit and the whole Sick to Fit movement, which helps people move in the direction of their health goals, values, and priorities. And I basically surrounded myself professionally with the need to help people who already believe what I believe implement it in their lives. And it's a very pleasant place to be. And I also realized that a lot of my running away from debate wasn't because I wasn't interested in facts or changing people's minds. It was because of the person that I was becoming when I was embroiled in those debates. Judgmental, irritable, impatient putting people down, sometimes thinking of them with contempt, especially if it was people that I saw as, you know, getting paid by meat and dairy and and big candy and big soda, and developed a very binary view, you know, us right, them wrong. And I just sort of put it out of my mind. Then a couple weekends ago, at the Chatham County Courthouse in Pittsburgh, North Carolina, where there were dueling protests about a Confederate-era statue of a soldier that was going to come down. And there's a lot of emotion around that topic on many sides. And I found myself getting into heated arguments with people on the other side and not being effective at all and simply getting angrier and angrier to the point where I wasn't doing anybody any good. I was just sort of promoting, you know, what I saw as an anti-racist agenda that was really all about my ego rather than trying to make the world a better place or represent something in a noble way. And so it was really good timing that this week we're talking with Melanie Joy. Melanie is a social psychologist, a vegan activist, and a political strategist fighting against all the oppressive archies out there, you know, patriarchy, oligarchy, white supremacy, all that sort of thing. And interestingly enough, she's also a relationship coach. And she joined the podcast to talk about her book, Beyond Beliefs, which is essentially a merging of the political and the relational. And the central question she seeks to help us answer in the book is, how can we advocate for, as vegans, for human health, environmental sanity, and ethical treatment of animals without wrecking our relationships with family members, friends, partners, and coworkers? Do we have to surround ourselves only with other plant-based people or vegans to have a good time? And as a spoiler, see infighting to figure out the answer to that one. When our veganism leads to relational conflict, it's not because of the veganism. It's actually a lack of what Joy calls relational literacy, a much more fundamental and global issue in our lives. And when we gain and practice this relational literacy, how to be in a relationship, the specifics of our conflicts can become fuel for growth, And depth in those relationships, rather than ticking bombs that could go off at any moment. So in our conversation, she teaches me, and I hope you, some perspective, hope, tools, and strategies for sustainable advocacy and living, whether it be vegan or any of the other intersectional anti-oppression, anti-violent, and anti-cruelty-isms that we seek to bring into the world. Before we get there, three quick things. First of all, a reminder that the Plant Yourself podcast is free for everyone and supported, funded by those who can afford it. So if you're one of those who can afford it and you enjoy listening to the show on a weekly basis, check it out at Patreon. Just search for Plant Yourself and with an ongoing monthly contribution, you get access to all my healthy habit huddles. And you also know that you are supporting something that hopefully means something to you. Second thing, Josh and I are preparing for our second health retreat in New Orleans. The first one was two weekends ago, and it was amazing. We have a total of 12 people in a big Airbnb, and I'll start to be uh, collecting and disseminating those stories so you can get a sense of what those are all about. And check out sick to fit that's sick number two, fit.com slash NOLA, all lowercase N-O-L-A as in New Orleans, Louisiana. Sick2Fit.com slash NOLA for information about that retreat, which is coming up the first weekend in March 2020. Last thing for now, if you would like to get healthy and fit and you would like guidance and support and handholding and one-on-one personal coaching with me, a year of unlimited 15-minute coaching sessions, please check out plantyourself.com forward slash laser L-A-S-E-R. I've got one slot open right now for a year of one-on-one coaching with me. All right, let's get right to it. Without further ado, Melanie Joy, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I'm I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, I, ju- I just went through. I guess it's your latest book, Beyond Beliefs. It,
1: I I've had one come out since then, but that came out about a, year, a little over a year ago, so it's oh. relatively, you know, Beyond relatively Beliefs.
0: Relatively, okay. Well, what's I'm I'm unprepared then. What's the latest
1: one? <laughs> yeah, it was it was actually um, a very busy. Uh, few years. For the past three and a half years or so, I wrote um, four books. So Beyond Beliefs mm. was one of them, the first one, um, which we'll be talking about today, I'm excited about. But uh, the one that just came out in September is called Powerarchy, Understanding the Psychology of Oppression for Social Transformation. So it's, mm. it's, more, it's not focused just on vegans, but um, on an on a audience uh, of people who are concerned with social change.
0: Ooh, well, uh, that sounds intriguing. I would like to read that one and have you back on to talk Thanks. about it. Um, which, which actually is a segue to one of the things I wanted to explore with you about Beyond Beliefs, which is it's it's essentially a book for vegans to be in good relation with people around them, and there's chapters that they can show to those people around them to kind of you know help bridge the gap but one of the beautiful things you do is you is you don't look at vegan as this sui generis thing that has no analogs in the rest of the of of human existence you put it in in a in a larger context of power differentials of of family dynamics of system dynamics of individual psychology, so it got me really curious about your your background and and your arc all, all I know from you, the bios that i've seen is that you're uh harvard trained um, like what where did you where did you come from that 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 kind of <laughs> amalgamated all of these things into the work you do
1: yeah um Well, my book that I'm best known for is Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, and that emerged out of um, my research and, of course, my own personal experience, which is where most books emerge, maybe all books emerge from, um, and theories. and. And I, I can give you a little bit of background on that, and that'll help, I think, bring this all together. So um, when I was growing up, um, like, like many people in the United States anyway, I grew up with a dog who I, I loved like a family member. Um, and I also grew up eating meat, eggs, and dairy. And, you know, even though I was a person who always cared about my impact on others, other animals, other humans, on my own body and my own health, I nevertheless ate um, meat, eggs, and dairy quite regularly, quite heavily. Um, And I never thought about the fact that I could pet my dog with one hand while I ate a pork chop with the other, you know, a pork chop that had once been an animal who was at least as as conscious and sentient as my dog. Um, And I ended up one day getting very sick. I ate a hamburger that was contaminated with campylobacter, um, which is like the salmonella of the red meat world. I wound up hospitalized on intravenous antibiotics, and I just stopped eating meat after that, um, simply because I was disgusted. Um, I didn't want to eat the the food that had made me so sick, and um, this was back in 1989. I was 23 years old at the time, and so I started learning about my new diet, which at the time was vegetarian. And what I learned shocked and horrified me. I mean, I just could not believe the the global mm. atrocity that was had been unfolding. Um, so what
0: what did what did you go to? Where did you go to learn? What I assume it was mostly books.
1: It was books, it was, you know, pamphlets, it was, but primarily books. I mean, this was before the internet. Um, I do remember I eventually read uh, Diet for a New America, and that, like, had a real impact on me. Um, That
0: that was the one that, that knocked me on my ass, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I was just I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what I was learning. And it was, you know, of course, I was deeply concerned about animal suffering, but I was also concerned about, you know, environmental problems and my own health. And this was back in the 80s. They didn't even know as much as they do today. But but so I was really shocked and horrified at what I learned. Um, But what shocked me perhaps even more was that nobody I talked to about what I was learning was willing to hear what I had to say. They would always say things like, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal, or they'd call me a crazy vegetarian hippie propagandist. And so I was really, you know, struck by this incre- this, this wall that I was hitting um, from people who were rational and compassionate, just like myself, just like mm-hmm. I had been. And so this motivated me to really study. I wanted to know what was, go- what was going on. How do good people turn away from atrocities um, and refuse to look at what's right in front of them? Um, and therefore enable these atrocities. So I studied the psychology of violence and nonviolence broadly, and then I focused my doctoral dissertation on the psychology of eating animals. And this was what led me to identify the belief system or ideology that I came to call carnism, which Mm -hmm. is the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat uh, certain animals.
0: So Um, Sorry sorry to interrupt So (laughs) I'm so into the story now. I don't want you to... (laughs) I want to zoom in on parts of it. So you, you I mean, you're using the tools of a, a certain sort of progressive, sensitive part of academia and, and activism around, you know, psychology of oppression. Um, I'm imagining that you had a lot of teachers, mentors, and professors who were all for the human aspects of this, but might have been challenged by where you wanted to take it. And, um,
1: well, I mean, so what, what's interesting is when you really deconstruct the ideology of carnism, you know, so carnism is basically the opposite of veganism. Um, it, it's it, it's invisible, so it hasn't, you know, or hadn't been named. Um, but it has the same structure, the same basic structure as other isms, like sexism, racism, speciesism, and so forth. And when you... Um, what I have found, what my research has shown, and it's, you know been a large part of what I've looked at, is that when you illuminate the psychology of these oppressive systems like carnism, when you illuminate the psychological defense mechanisms that people use, uh, these systems are organized around psychological defense mechanisms. This was really what my research was was looking for and looking at um, ways of thinking that are distortions that disconnect us from our natural empathy for other human and non-human beings. When you illuminate these these defenses and distortions, they lose a lot of their power. So simply in talking and writing about carnism um, put me in a position where people were more receptive to what I had to say. I, I encountered very little resistance, um, put it that way. A lot of this is about how you present the material, you know, and how rational or how objectively, you know, you're doing your research and, and presenting your research. But you're absolutely right. Humans have a remarkable ability to compartmentalize you know we we often you know vegans for example often assume that, you know, we've kind of stepped outside this box that is carnism or maybe broad, more broadly speciesism and think that we've stepped outside of all of the boxes, but when in fact <laughs> we remain mired in, in many others. And, and I've met a number of vegans who are, you know, as defensive, if not more so, to examining their participation in certain other isms as meat eaters might be to mm-hmm. participation in carnism.
0: Right. So, you know, I mean, one of the things I was thinking about while reading the book, which you don't really, you don't, I don't think address head on, is like one of the things that props up carnism. This is going to sound so obviously and obvious and stupid is eating meat. And I and I mean that in terms of like what it's doing to our bodies. Right. Like I know so many people like you, you didn't stop eating meat because of an ethical decision or an epiphany, you stopped, and that opened you
1: up to... to I I don't know that, right, but I don't know it's because something changed in my body. I had no reason to defend my meat consumption anymore because I wasn't eating it. So psychologically, Mm -hmm. there was much less to defend. There was nothing left to defend. So I think I could, I think... Mm -hmm back i could be more receptive to the reality of what you know what animal agriculture or carnistic agriculture um if we want to call it that uh i could be much more receptive to the reality of what this was doing simply because i wasn't mm. invested in right. maintaining it itself.
0: right yeah i, th- I mean i think yeah, I, th- I agree that's a huge part i also think that there is a biochemical aspect cool. mm-hmm. um but so let's let's talk about carnism since that underlies beyond beliefs so you have yes. your, your your three ends right
1: right so so just for for listeners or viewers who aren't familiar with carnism, so what i was uh, what I did was I interviewed you know, meat eaters and meat cutters and butchers and people who had raised and killed their own animals for food, looking for the common psychology, looking for an understanding of how good people could participate in harmful practices toward animals without fully realizing what they're doing. And that was what led me to identify carnism. And when I identified carnism, I also um, worked to, or part of my research was, was deconstructing it. I was asking myself okay, so it looks like there's this ism there, this this ideology. How is it structured? What is its basic structure? What keeps it alive? And this was what led me to recognize that carnism is basically maintains itself by conditioning us, the people who are part of the system, to use a set of psychological defense mechanisms. Um, and these are ways of thinking um, that basically distort our perceptions and disconnect us from our natural empathy for other animals. Um, This uh, analysis eventually formed, this formed the foundation of the work that I do today that's much broader than carnism, the psychology of oppression in general, and it's also very connected to the work I do in relationality, which was your original question, which I can Mm -hmm. answer more fully. After I explain, you asked about the three N's, an example of what these carnistic defenses look like. So when we're born into a system such as carnism, this is a dominant system. That means it's so widespread that the system itself is invisible. So eating animals is just the the way things are, for example. Um, When we're born into a dominant system such as carnism, we inevitably learn to look at the world through the lens of carnism. So we automatically we internalize these defense mechanisms. We learn to believe, for example, in this mythology that I refer to as the three ends of justification, that eating animals is normal, natural and necessary. So justification is one of the defenses of the system. Um, and these same justifications, of course, have been used to support violent practices throughout human history, you know, from uh, male dominance to heterosexual supremacy. Um these three ends of justification and and all of the carnistic defenses essentially are institutionalized that means they're embraced and maintained by all of the major social institutions so you know the state business medicine nutrition and so forth so for example when most people study nutrition they're actually studying carnistic nutrition and these defenses exist in order that we continue to participate in a system that most of us would find deeply offensive if we actually had freed our minds so that we could think Mm. more authentically and feel more fully.
0: Right. I think, you know, the 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 great service you have done. I mean, I I don't I don't want to discount any of your work, but giving it a name is almost 90 percent of the work. Right. Like once, like I remembered um, I I had been doing this podcast for probably a year and a half, two years already. And I interviewed uh, Susan Levin of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine on some research that they had done. And I said, what what do you um, what do you say to people who are worried that the PCRM's research is tainted by the bias of veganism? And 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 I asked that. It, not as a, um, a devil's advocate question, but honestly, and, and and her reply shocked me. She's like, "Well, what about all the other what? What about the the bias of all the people who eat meat?" Right. And I was like, "Huh? I never, you know, like like there it was inside me, without you know, without having a name." And as soon as you as soon as I came across your work, he says, "Oh, like the thing that doesn't have a name." doesn't exist until we give it a name. It reminded me of this uh, Taoist concept of like the space between the clouds mm-hmm. is not just sky. It's a thing. And, and what you reified it by giving it this name and, and laying out its operating principles. And I think, when, you know, once you do that for people like we can go a long way, it's just like <laughs> yeah. the dominoes start to fall.
1: Yeah, thank you. I'm a huge proponent of naming, you know, for the reasons you've just explained. And I think it's important if we don't name it, we can't see it. We can't see it. We can't think about it. We can't talk about it. We can't question it. We can't challenge it. it. I mean, we Mm -hmm. can but it's just a lot harder um you know because we're we're dealing with an abstraction but once we name it and we recognize um you know the way the system is structured and the very specific defenses and distortions it uses to keep itself alive we those of us who want to challenge and and work to transform that system have a lot more power to do so
0: right and and a lot of that power has to be deployed internally first I think like, like this, this happened to me this morning when I was finishing reading your book, Beyond Beliefs, is you, you have a bunch of scenarios. It's a very engaging book. It's not, it's not all theory. You have like this couple and this couple and this couple negotiating. And it occurred to me like two thirds of your couple are non heterosexual. And it occurred to me that I've written a whole bunch of books in which I've used couples and I have never used A a gay or lesbian couple, anything other than a, a, you know, like as far as I've ever gone was like giving them like, you know, non Kim and Brad names. (laughs) Right. And so I, you know, like looking at your work makes me see where the, the dominant power structure lives in me unexamined.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah well I I admire that I mean the fact that you see it and and reflect on it is huge because very often um the invisible doesn't just become visible because we start to recognize and make connections ourselves I mean we're we're all quite socialized to feel to to basically not see the power differentials and to not see um you know to think in this very normative way mm-hmm. so and um um yeah so it's it's important to just, you know, we, we, as I said earlier, we have a remarkable ability to compartmentalize. And so we step outside of oneism we become vegan, for example. Um, but it doesn't mean that we haven't remained mired in many others. And, and the real journey I think is to learn to really think very critically about these systems themselves and about our participation in them. And this actually brings me to the question that you had asked about how my work work you know how how these different aspects of myself have or my work have become synthesized um and kind of in parallel trajectory with my work on carnism i was partially trained I did another kind of half of a master's degree on, on marriage and family therapy and I was always very interested in relationships like deeply immersed in relationships and relational theory um, and I, I started working a long time ago now as a relationship coach which I did for a long time but um, and Beyond Beliefs is um, was the first of my sort of more relationally focused works, which is, you know, Beyond Beliefs is a, a guide for vegans, vegetarians and and meat eaters to improve relationships and communication. And I wrote Beyond Beliefs because I did wear these two hats. You know, on one hand, I was working on you know exposing and transforming carnism for for vegan advocates and beyond, you know, just for the world. Right. Um, And on the other hand, I had this specialization in relationships and I was traveling around the world, um, giving talks and trainings through our Center for Effective Vegan Advocacy. And I met with thousands and thousands. I have spoken with thousands of vegans around the world and vegetarians who have similar experiences, which might be surprising to many vegans. And I keep hearing the same story over and over again, which was that becoming vegan, the choice to become vegan, was deeply empowering, often one of the most empowering experiences of their lives, if not the most empowering experience. And yet, at the same time, after they became vegan— they would find that their relationships and communication started to break down. And so this deeply empowering experience turned into a deeply problematic experience in some ways. And I was seeing how this relationship and communication breakdown was siphoning a tremendous amount of energy out of a movement that basically needs all the energy and help it can get. It is tremendously exhausting for us to be spending, I mean, relationship problems and communication problems are absolutely exhausting and we know research shows that people who have healthy connected relationships fare better pretty much in, in every area of life so mm-hmm. so it was just natural for me to start to bring these two parts of myself together and they they started out through beyond beliefs mm-hmm.
0: and i and i love how you make the relational pieces these sort of trivial interactions and day-to-day little things that we we i think we think of as our own crosses to bear and unrelated like there's almost like yeah yeah i got this problem with 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 my husband josh and you know like maria and and or Jacob, Maria, and Jacob. At, in your very first anecdote at the the holiday table. Like I was reading that, like it was some sort of like slow moving horror story of of, of, of a relationship just falling apart. Like it was one of these you know sad novels that I can never finish. And <laughs> and to 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 allow people who are who are focused outwardly on the activist part to To understand that the the personal, the private, the relational has an impact on that it feels like it feels like a real gift. It reminds me I did an interview a couple months ago with Adrian Marie Brown, uh, who wrote a book called Pleasure Activism, and talking about the relation of physical pleasure, or food pleasure, touch pleasure, sexual pleasure, with the act of changing the world, and like how so many. Activists feel like they have to eschew the one until until the other is solved. I love how how you bring the personal into the political.
1: Right. Well, thank you. Um, it's you know, my my um, one of the things that I've observed is that, I mean, feminists in the 1960s said the personal is political. We can't separate them. They're all interconnected. And and after writing Beyond Beliefs, um, I always had intended Beyond Beliefs to actually be two books, one for vegans and vegetarians and then a different version of that bigger, alert, fairly, you know, with a bit more re, uh, information. And in I should say that's not vegan related for a mainstream audience um, to really because I believe. Deeply, I believe deeply that a key to creating the kind of world that we all want to live in is is what I call relational developing relational literacy, which is the ability to understand and practice healthy ways of relating. And if you look at the problems in our world, you know, um, and I say this, I've said this before, and I will say it again, I am always really amazed that most of us have to learn complicated geometry that we'll probably never need to use. And yet we don't get a single lesson on how to be a healthy relational being. And when you Mm -hmm. look at the problems of our world, you know, they're not problems that are caused in large part because people don't know how to do geometry. So (laughs) relational dysfunction is the norm. And when you look at Problems of oppression, you know, oppressive systems like speciesism, racism, sexism, and so forth, and you look at problems like abusive relationships or or dysfunctional workplace dynamics or infighting in social justice movements and the vegan movement, Um, you can see that all of these problems reflect relational dysfunction. It's a dysfunction in how we relate as social groups to one another as individuals to one another how we relate to other animals how we relate to the environment and even how we relate to ourselves and i find this very interesting and deeply important to really have a conversation about how we can recognize dysfunctional ways of relating and also understand the basics of relating in a way that's, that's functional or healthy. And that's actually largely the focus of my book powerarchy, which is looking at the way, you know, when we look at these systems of oppression, they all have the same basic structure and they all reflect the same basic mentality and all of them, what they have in common, they are all what I call non-relational. They reflect non-relational ways of relating. And non-relational ways of relating are relating in ways that, A, violate our integrity. So if I interact with you, whether I'm communicating with you, communication is the primary way we relate, right? So if my, I'm communicating with you, or making choices that impact you, or other animals, for example, if I violate my integrity, that means I don't practice compassion or caring and justice or fairness. Essentially, mm-hmm. I don't treat them the way that I would want to be treated. So a non-relational behavior violates integrity and inevitably harms dignity. It reflects that the other that we're interacting with is less is not fundamentally worthy of being treated with respect. And the result is disconnection disconnection between individuals between social groups between you know humans and non-humans and so forth and so when we think about you know the when we think about the the most pressing problems in our world and also the suffering that we experience as individuals as the result of relational dysfunction then the good news is that we learn we can learn how to be more relationally functional relational literacy is something that we can all develop and um you know there's it's it's not rocket science Mm. there's you know principles and tools that pretty much anybody who wants to learn can learn and learning relational literacy can literally transform your life and your Mm. uh, impact on the world
0: right and and the nice thing about that is in, in my experience we are all hardwired for relational success, that, that, these, that, the things okay. that the things that block us tend to be things that happen to us or things that we imbibe, so that one per it's not like like I, I spent a year learning um, learning juggling, and we would do like passing things, clubs and things. and if if I was a beginner, the other person who was an expert couldn't really get me to be better. But in relationship, when I am skilled, if I just stop and become vulnerable or ask a really curiosity-driven question, the other person rises almost always.
1: Yeah, that's really well said. That's absolutely true because we are part of, you know, we are part of all of these systems you know a system is just a it's a human system you know or a, a living system involving humans it's just it's a relationship a system can be a relationship of two people or it can be you know a social system which is hundreds of millions of people but as participants in these systems as you point out we have the power to influence the dynamics of the system to a large degree all things being equal, right? We also bring different levels of power into different systems. So, you know, if a white person interacting with a person of color comes in with more power because white people have more social power, but all things being equal in a system of two, we have a 50%, you know, 50% 50% ability to impact the dynamics of that system. And so when we relate in a way that's more helpful. We can actually shift the whole dynamic of that system so that the relationship itself becomes more healthful, more secure and connected or more resilient.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated by your use of the word power there, because I understand the power dynamics of dominant culture, of, of white versus people of color, of heterosexist, of male but there's a different kind of power and i feel like in some in some way your book is a handbook on developing that other kind of power of of an individual who owns themselves who's done hmm. who's done the work like a couple, we're we're having a big um, to do in our town this little north carolina town with like of 3000 people cuz there's a confederate statue that, that we've been fighting about whether it should come down, and every weekend there are protests and I went to a couple of the protests and I could feel myself becoming more and more powerless in the in the, in the in the way that I'm thinking of it because I was getting caught up. I was being i was I was feeling provoked and I spoke to some of the people the other people on the other side in ways that felt not an integrity with who I am. There was this, the you know, the dialogue in my head about, I don't want to betray my friends of color by like, you know, I was a mess. And I ended up with zero positive impact on the situation. Mm-hmm. And I saw other people there with, you know, megaphones and bullhorns shouting insults back and forth who had far less power. Yeah, you know, Like they had a sort of a negative power. But I've been in situations like that where, where a person who knows their themself and is comfortable in their skin can kind of turn things around. And it felt like reading your book was a, you know, a yellow brick road to that, that kind of can, in certain circumstances, negate or counterbalance the institutional power of our oppressive systems.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for that. And it's a really powerful, actually, example that you use, um, you know, to describe this feeling of um, wanting to challenge power structures but then feeling powerless within that and then feeling like you're not anchored in your own deeper sense of power. It's sort of, you know, our tendency is to – To counter, to respond to abuses of power, uh, to abuses of power by abusing power ourselves. This is the tendency. And in in my book, Powerarchy, I talk about, it's about the psychology of power, essentially, and power dynamics. And and what I talk about is this, the powerarchical mentality, which is you know, when we as I said, when we look at all of these different systems, they're they're structured in in a very similar way. They share the same basic structure, these systems of oppression or abusive relationships. They're they're organized to maintain an unjust power imbalance between individuals or between social groups. And they are also organized around a core belief, and that's the belief in a hierarchy of moral worth, that some individuals or groups are more worthy of being treated with integrity essentially with respect than others and what happens is that when we buy into this um you know this way of this power way of thinking and we've all been born into this dominant power culture powerarchy is the name i use for the the meta system of oppression if we think of like oppressions as spokes on a wheel um powerarchy mm-hmm. is the hub it's the backdrop and so We all have been born into this very non, it's it's a non-relational system and it really conditions us to believe that the way that we should derive our sense of power is by taking it from others or by wielding it over others. We feel more powerful when we perceive others as morally inferior in some way. And so we just, we often automatically end up, as soon as we go into a situation like the one you were talking about where we're challenging a power structure, an unjust power imbalance, we can easily end up becoming the very thing we're trying to transform. If we don't recognize this mentality that tends to get triggered, especially when we're in situations where we feel powerless. So for a more practical example, you know, we can look at infighting in in movements like in the vegan, you know, space, for example, in social justice movements. So many people are, you know, advocating compassion and justice. While using methods that are uncompassionate and unjust, you know, publicly degrading those whose opinions they don't agree with. And so we, we very, if we don't recognize this tendency that we've been socialized into to, you know, pull power away from others, basically knock others down in order to prop ourselves up, we en- end up engaging in the very problematic dynamics we want mm-hmm. to transform
0: Right. So one of the underlying themes that I got from your book was the importance of uh, non-perfectionism, right? Because cause cause we're all messed up. <laughs> Right. We've all been infected. And you're talking a lot about this is all a continuum. It's not that there's healthy and unhealthy relationships. Some are more healthy than others. There's not unhealthy or healthy interactions. Some are healthier than others. I think that, you know, the idea of perfectionism is paralyzing. Right. Because we feel like, OK, well, I become vegan. I'm woke. Mm-hmm. And in either. But what that means is because I'm woke, everything I do is Right or i'm so ashamed of the ways that i'm unwoke that there must be something completely wrong with me
1: right and it's it's and you're absolutely right i mean perfectionism is a major obstacle to healthy relationality for one and i don't want people listening to this to get perfectionistic about being healthy in relationship <laughs> because it's just another manifestation of perfectionism um but perfectionism is certainly an obstacle. It gets in the way of us being the authentic, you know, people who we we are. We are complicated. We are messy. We were born into a very messy, deeply dysfunctional world. None of us has like emerged and unscathed. Um, so we all have our baggage. You know, we all are a mix of function and dysfunction. We do the best we can with with what we've had. We need to be careful, you know, not to fall into the trap of thinking that we can and should be perfect, and to recognize perfectionism. Number one, as an impossible, it's an illusion. Everything can be improved upon. Everything can be perfected. So we will never achieve perfection. Um, and to recognize the tendency, and, and this is becoming increasingly true um, as as the broader culture becomes increasingly polarized, politically polarized. Morally polarized, I would say, um, to become morally perfectionistic. Um, one of the hallmarks of having experienced some kind of uh, fra- relational fracture, we'll say, um, you know, attachment trauma, for example, or, or, or a relational suffering. Um, is that we can tend to develop what I call a trauma narrative, in other words, we many vegans, for example, have experienced some degree of traumatization from witnessing the atrocity that is carnism um, you know an atrocity is a mass traumatic event, and these you know even smaller traumatic experiences they're all around us you know these disconnections, the harm that we see being caused to others and ourselves all around us so we can end up developing this trauma narrative whereby we start to see everyone in the world, including ourselves, as belonging in one of three categories um, with no nuance in between. Somebody is either a victim or a perpetrator or a hero. We lose our capacity for nuance, and this is a very dangerous way of thinking. This really leads to this toxic moral perfectionism where we have, like, no wiggle room for people to be their messy, complicated, you know, fallible selves. And we lose the capacity to appreciate that good people can can and do participate in harmful practices. This is how we're all socialized, and that doesn't make them bad people. So we need to be careful to practice like deep compassion for ourselves and others. And I think, you know, I'm amazed that we make it through the day most of the time, given the mess we've been born into and the fact that most of us haven't been given any tools whatsoever to navigate it.
0: Right, and I I, I love the, your, your metaphor of, you know, if, if we receive driver's ed, the way we receive relational training, especially around conflict, you know, we would just be like running people over doing damage to property with every trip, right? And that's that's kind of how we are in the world.
1: Right. So we so it's important not to be, you know, don't be shocked that people eat animals. Don't be shocked that people are defensive about eating animals. This doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable. It doesn't mean we don't work to try to change problematic behaviors. It just means we do so with an awareness of an appreciation for the fact that the world is complicated and messy and and people uh You know, who are deeply socialized to engage in a particular type of behavior like eating animals may find may feel that it's virtually impossible to stop that. Um, And so and it can help us to frame our message to increase the chances that it will be heard the way we intend it to be. So, for example, I rarely say go vegan when I'm advocating veganism. I encourage people to be as vegan as possible it's it's more realistic it's actually more rational because people can't be more vegan than what's possible for them but it gives people the opportunity to really experience a sense of agency to be the experts on themselves um and an encouragement to move in the right direction
0: right so you know so there's a political argument that i'm i follow because i don't know what the answer is to it, but it's it's from people on the sort of the progressive wing of American politics who are debating with each other whether it's OK to try to understand the other side. Right. So you ha- we had this uh, I know you're you're in Germany, so I don't know how it plugged in you are to the catastrophe, the daily unfolding catastrophe of America's descent into whatever. Um, but there are, you know, there's people that say that, well, I, Every time we see an article about, you know, the the Louisiana Bayou dwellers and why, you know, and sort of justification of or the Appalachian coal miners and why they these people who should be so pro labor are supporting alt right. And that, you know, that, that we don't it, it weakens our ability to be morally steadfast in opposition. And so you have like the whole debate over Hillary Clinton's comment about the deplorables um your book sort of talks about wh- you know why understanding is good from both a strategic and an integrity perspective. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Um absolutely. Um If we really, you know, we, when when we look at Take the United States, for example, you know, the catastrophe that has been unfolding in the United States. And um, we, you know, one of the hopes for change or transformation in the country, as in many places in the world, is that those who are challenging the dominant toxic non-relational culture and administration are able to do so effectively. And in order for us to challenge these, you know, what I would call powerarchies, you know, systems of the oppressive systems of power. In order for us to challenge these powerarchies, we need our, our counter movements. You know, some people refer to these as resistance movements to be healthy and, and resilient. So these dominant systems like carnism and, and so forth, um, you know, they are challenged by what I call a system. So veganism is the counterpoint to carnism. If our counter systems or our resistance systems are are not powerful, we are at a significant disadvantage. And they're not powerful when we are engaging with each other in ways that are non-relational, ways that cause us to feel disconnected from one another and disempowered with one another and insecure in those spaces. So, we also need to recognize, I think, that underneath our differences, whatever differences we're talking about, carnism and veganism or right wing and left wing politics. uh, And I don't mean to minimize, you know, the very real problems that come with certain political beliefs and policies and practices. Believe me, I I fully understand and appreciate these problems or the, the impact the potential impact of these problems. But underneath these differences is a relationship between people. And that's where the focus needs to be if we really want to be able to reach out and raise awareness so that people who are opposed to what we're representing when we're suggesting a shift away from the dominant powerarchy we need to be able to raise awareness um to communicate in a way so that our message is heard the way we intend it to be the united states is a democracy what that mean? you know i can put that quote <laughs> right that. i just realized as it was coming out of my mouth um but it is It is. Let's just say the United States is structured as a democracy. And what that means is that if we do hope to shift the scales, tip the scales of power and to shift power, we do need to attract people who are now opposed to the message that we're trying to share. We will never attract people if we come across as the enemy. We'll never attract people if we communicate with and about them in a way that reflects contempt. Contempt is probably the most disconnecting of all emotions. And as soon as we start communicating and expressing contempt and a lack of understanding, you know, um, people tend to shut down to our message. When we communicate from a place of contempt, We tend to communicate in a way that shames others, whether it's directly or indirectly. And you can see a lot of this in the public, you know, in political rhetoric today. People who experience themselves as being shamed, as being ignorant, as being selfish, you know, however, however we might be framing our communication um, studies have shown that when people feel under threat of shame or if they're experiencing shame, they tend to be less rational and less uh, empathic, and they tend to shut down to the message. And they're more likely to react by fighting back. So it's just from even if people don't agree with what I'm saying ethically, you know, that that, um, it makes sense to try to practice, bring integrity into our communications. From a strategic perspective, it's essentially strategic suicide to communicate in a way that's non-relational to and about the people whose support we need to some extent, if we hope to shift the dialogue.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, for me, what it, what it feels like is I I have this low-grade addiction to being right, mm-hmm. and it can you know or like it's a, it's a low grade it's like a you know like a herpes virus like it's always it's, it's in there it's not going anywhere and it gets triggered by di- by different things and my job is is not to discover the cure for the herpes virus but to to, to become reflective on what triggers me and so you have you have a lot of tools in the book. You have ACT therapy. You have nonviolent communication. You have Stanley Tatkin's incredible work on you know, the neuro, I guess neuropsychology of relationship. Um, what do you What do you hope that people will take from the book? You know, okay, I've just finished reading it. I've got all these concepts. I intellectually like check. What do you hope that people will do with? themselves after finishing the book
1: yeah well with this book with beyond beliefs and also with um the my book coming out in february called getting relationships right which <laughs> is like beyond I, it's been a, it's been a busy
0: i'm i'm now feeling guilty for having taken an hour of your time <laughs> I feel like I've just put off your next publication date.
1: (laughs) Um, So with Getting Relationships Right is basically the beyond beliefs for the mainstream. So it's really Mm -hmm. focused on one-stop guide for people who want to develop relational literacy and improve their communication. So, um, you know, with both of these books, um, the goal is is largely the same, although Beyond Beliefs is really focused on this – the – um, specific types of dynamics that can occur when people are uh, navigating inter-ideological relationships, like vegan and non-vegan, or vegetarian and and non-vegan, or or vegetarian and meat eater, and um, it's also for vegans relating to other vegans, because um, vegans do have a certain set. You know, we have a unique experience in some ways in the world. With both of these books, what I hope people will take away is. A commitment to a recognition that we that that all of us basically from a psychological perspective, it's just rational to, you know, accept that we do the best we can with what we've had, what we have and to really step back from that judgmental mentality of like, you know, making up a story about somebody else or about ourselves. You know, we tend to compare ourselves to an idealized version of ourselves all the time. And Judge ourselves so that we can be less less judgmental more compassionate more understanding Um, And so ultimately to really commit to to practicing healthy relationality and all this means, you know There's lots of tools in in both books of course practical tools But what this really comes down to is developing a habit of being more intentional and more conscientious in your actions um, And in your choices not in a perfectionistic way more just more intentional, developing your inner observer, committing to pausing throughout the day, pausing before you hit send, and reflecting and asking yourself, um, how you know, asking yourself, is this behavior, is this communication reflecting who I want to be? Is this reflecting integrity? Do I feel good about it? It's not you know, then, then pausing and maybe choosing not to engage in it. And and also when other people are doing that to you as well, you know, so that you protect, shore up your own boundaries. I mean, that's kind of the simple formula for healthy relational behaviors. They reflect integrity and honor dignity. And because of this, they lead to deepening connection rather than disconnection.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So as a health coach, I work with a lot of people on dealing with their temptations to binge And this feels very similar, that there's this feeling that comes up inside me and calling you a moron is going to make me feel better for a moment. (laughs) Right. And it's an addiction. It's a it's an addictive behavior. It's a way to manage my state in the moment. With, yeah. with very negative long-term consequences. So how, how do you like, yeah, I can read all this stuff. I can, I can follow your seven point plan for having discussions versus debates. But how do you help people like with the, the physical sensations that lead us to do all these self-defeating behaviors?
1: Well, um, people are, um, you know, we're much better at not giving into physical sensations that are encouraging us or driving us to act against our interests if we recognize them for what they are. You know, when you recognize a craving for a cigarette as something that's not good for you, it's easier for you to resist picking up that cigarette. Uh, than it would be if you thought that mm-hmm. that craving was your body's way of telling you you needed a cigarette. So a lot of this is 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 really about awareness, and and you're absolutely right about the you know sort of addictive component to all of this. Um, this the what I call the powerarchical mentality. It can be helpful to think of this mentality as like an entity that's taken up residence in your psyche with a survival instinct. It wants to keep itself alive hmm. and it will drive you to engage in power behaviors, pa- power behaviors where you prop yourself up by putting others down. Um, even if you're not even aware of what you're doing, one way you can recognize that you're under the influence of the powerarchical mentality is to notice when you're feeling one of the, you know, kind of twin emotions, I would call them of contempt or shame. Both of these are emotions that exist only in relationship, they're dualistic, only when we're comparing ourselves to another, for example, or an idealized version of ourselves. Um, And both of them reflect this power mentality that some individuals or groups are more worthy of being treated with integrity or respect than others. Contempt is an indication that we've put ourselves in a position of moral superiority, and shame is an, in, an indication that we perceive ourselves in a position of moral inferiority. And the antidote to both of those is empathy. So simply committing to noticing and awareness, you know, these are red flag emotions, noticing an awareness and stepping back, observing them, and not allowing yourself to feed the story that either one of them is telling you, that you're inferior or you're superior, because that's an illusion.
0: Mm, Beautiful. I'd like to finish by just um, talking brass tacks about vegans and veganism and the kinds of, um, like, your scenarios are so familiar to me. And yet before I read them, they felt like, oh, like this, no one understands this particular conversation that I have or this dynamic with friends. And yet, you know, by, by... putting them in the book, you kind of universalize them. I wonder if you could sort of share some of the specific vegan-related um, contexts and situations and 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 how to navigate them more skillfully.
1: Well, I mean, the same principles and tools that we would use to navigate any kind of uh, uh, interpersonal conflict would apply in these circumstances, except that, um, you know, there's the added problem of carnistic defensiveness. So, I mean, what I, what I can say is that, you know, vegans, one thing that I think is really important and can be helpful for vegans, as you point out, is just to recognize that these experiences don't have to be personal. So for example, when you're sitting at the dinner table and somebody is teasing you or making moo sounds as they're eating their hamburger in front of you, um, recognize that as, as disrespectful you know that's non-relational behavior for one um and that's carnistic hostility or carnistic prejudice in action I mean, many vegans are treated in ways that by virtue of our membership in a social group, um, are treated in ways that would be considered completely unacceptable to treat people who are members of other social groups. So, you know, one important step is just for vegans to recognize that, um, you know, there is this very real carnistic prejudice that is out there. So when you're on the receiving end of hostile humor, for instance, or otherwise disrespectful behavior, somebody, um, Uh, telling you that you're overly sensitive because you care about, um, uh, about, You know, farmed animals, for example, or putting you down for your beliefs, or telling you you're wasting your time because you should be caring about, you know, focusing on human animals rather than non-human animals. To recognize the 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 defensive nature of this kind of commentary and and the incredibly non-relational nature of it, so that you don't end up internalizing that and feeling ashamed and apologizing for who you are and what you believe, Um, and so that hopefully you can communicate in a way that raises awareness. So that this behavior stops and beyond beliefs, I have actually scripts that people can just photocopy and use to have these conversations. Um, so one tip is just, if you're, you're heading to a dinner um, and you're worried that you're going to be the only person at the dinner who's, you know, vegan and you're worried about how that's going to unfold to find one person who's going to be there, one person in your family or among your friends who can be your ally, you know, to share with them what it's like for you to be the only vegan and, and, You know how and ask them to see the world through your eyes just to say, I just, you know, I really would love to tell you about this. It's really a struggle and I need somebody who understands. And once you have an ally, you're no longer alone. And that can shift the whole dynamic, really. Mm. Also, simply identifying problematic behavior for what it is and, and refusing to engage with it and really protecting yourself. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so a, a lot of the, the dialogues w- reminded me of, you know th- there's a, a Saturday Night Live character called Debbie Downer, and which, oh. which I think which I thought was very funny until I started thinking about it. And once I started thinking about it, it really felt like punching down. Like so, anyone who's concerned about anything other than the momentary pleasure, like you know they're at a party, and Debbie downer's like, well, what about the ozone layer and like like you know, and there's a way in which we don't want to feel like debbie downers at every at every gathering um what's you know how how can we be in integrity while we are feeling things that if we expressed every single one of our feelings no one would want to be around us
1: um well i mean it's it's probably uh, you know you you need to be in a safe space to be able to express your feelings openly anyway. So part of, part of it is just to being integrity is also having healthy boundaries to protect yourself from being treated disrespectfully or being, being vulnerable in a space that's not safe for you. You don't have to, I mean, you can, you, depending on where you are, um, you don't have to be the vegan. Give yourself permission not to be the vegan at the dinner. Vegans don't always have to be on. They don't always mm. have to be advocating. Give yourself permission not to advocate and just be you because that's an investment in your sustainability.
0: Well, Melanie, there are so many more questions that I want to ask you. I know you got to go. I hope to uh, get you back to talk about uh, Powerarchy. But thank you so much. The book is Beyond Beliefs, Melanie Joy. Thank you so much for this conversation and for all the work you do in the world.
1: Yes, thank you, too. Um, I appreciate it very much and, and your awareness raising and the, the depth of uh, analysis that you bring to the conversation it's it's really inspiring for me um if people want more information they can come to our website carnism.org um and there's also a website for powerarchy with a short um a 39 minute talk on it to get an overview of of what i'm referring to
0: say the url
1: it's powerarchy.org
0: powerarchy.org and i'll include links in the show notes
1: great thank you
0: thank you so much melanie take care All right. Well, as I hope you can hear, that conversation was super useful for me. I hope it was useful for you as well. If you enjoyed this episode of Plant Yourself and you'd like to support the mission of the show, the easiest way to do it is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. That helps other people find the show. You can also share this episode with people you think would be interested by social media or just send them an email or just tell them about it. And, of course, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com. Just look for Plant Yourself or go to plantyourself.com and look for the Patreon button in the right sidebar. So garden news these days is becoming more consumptive than productive. We had a fantastic um, I think it's called Rumplety thump, a kind of coal cannon that I got actually from an old cookbook from Sundays at the Moosewood, which we made with a whole bunch of our garden grown uh, Yukon Gold, potatoes. Um, we had a frost last night. I don't know if any of the greens are still there. But again, this is the fallow time of year for the garden where things get to rest and the big piles of compost get to do their magic so that in spring we're ready to uh, to go at it again. In running news, I did a good 12 on Saturday. I, um, I ran hard. The average pace was about nine minute miles. I walked for the first uh, roughly half a mile. So that brings the Average up a bit, but when I was running, it was essentially nine-minute mile pace, which I haven't done in a long time, to which I attribute uh, putting away the iPhone, not listening to audiobooks, and just focusing on my form, a la Chi Running. Thank you, Danny and Catherine Dreyer. So, speaking of thanks... Thanks, of course, to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use Sabali Don, the Dance of Peace, as the theme music for this show. Check out WillRidenour.com for more beautiful Chora music. And, of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons, as in... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Dyson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Heavily Mary, Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bysak, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth, Thelman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina Julianne, Roland, Stu Dolmich, Sarah Durkis, Rams, Circus Kelly, Cameron Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Jeanette Benham, Gil, Eric David, Donahue, Blair Cybert, Toru Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderburg, Misha Michael Waravek, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindeman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch, plant-heavy organ, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blunt, Teresa Cobble, Show Rudla, Julia Watkins, Rita O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hershman, Kate Rosland Daya Julie Langholm, Eddie Gaudis, Justin Watkins, Connie Hayline, Erin Curry, Alicia Davis, Nivela L, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakowski, a plant-powered for health care, Smith Kam, Randy Carney, Joe Crabtree, Taiy Lewis, Kirby. Bird, i <laughs> Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jetty Hazleton, Valley, Peltier Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divitt, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Burr, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnae Lanquist, Valerie Humble, Dev Emily Ikinelli, Levy Wallach, Moser and Ma- Rosamond Mackage, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leland, Peter, Patty, Di Martino, Mike and Donna Donakard, St. Bishop, Bill Brift, Peter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Mulden, Tricia Adams, Ian Craner, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunry Gunri Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Jordan Heaton, Meg from the Rachel Kennedy, Joan Borstein, Diana Goldman, Stacy Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael K. Holly Butler. So close, just four left. David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, and Sally Robertson for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review, let other people know about it, give us some stars, give us some love. And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone... Uh, who you think would benefit. Send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join ARMS and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show and it's free for everyone and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one-time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Heatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Felkonowski, David Vizek, the Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, From Franz, Jeanette Benham, Gil Assert, David Donna, Blair Cyber, Toronto Viso, and Carol Rajitati, Jody Friesner, with Anthunderberg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Aman Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Diane Norton, Bonnie Lynch, The Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Channel Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Colm Hedegaard, Isa Tuziwakani, Hayline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis... Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski, of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, and Jesse Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine with Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie, Fannie, Linane Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levi Wallach, Rosamond McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lennon... Pettie Martino, Mike and Donna Carson, Diane Bishop, Bill Brielf Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Gun Marie Hagen, Tracy College, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parm Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olivia Sideroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Avedible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owens, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.